Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi everyone, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario for webyeshiva.org. We are studying Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, Morena Vufim. We've been doing this for quite some time. We are now in section two, chapter 24. Um, uh, let's get our bearings. In chapter 23, the Rambam had uh, taken an interlude uh, in his discussion of Aristotle's cosmogony and cosmology, the way that Aristotle perceives or conceives of the structure of the heavenly realm. And, um, uh, and the Rambam had given us general advice uh, as a, a guiding principle whenever um, a person is stuck with uh, a question of which ideology they should adhere to when faced with several doubts on both sides. So now we're continuing, we're going back to, after that interlude in chapter 23, we are going back to a discussion of the flaws of Aristotle's cosmological model. And if you'll recall, Aristotle was of the belief that everything emanated necessarily from his prime deity, his prime being, his prime mover, um, and that everything that uh, we see in the celestial realm is a reflection of that deity's absolute perfection. Um, and therefore, uh, these things emanate without any sentient, willful choice, but rather it's just a natural uh, outflow or, or emanation from that perfect being. Aristotle's primary argument that he had begun in chapter 22 was the fact that we see so much uh, unevenness or imperfection in that if if this is indeed a just a natural emanation of perf of a perfection of God, then we would expect absolute uniformity and not this what he calls particularization that we find in the celestial realm. Aristotle's going to get down to the nitty-gritty today. It's a bit more of a lengthy chapter with a lot more of technological uh, technical issues. And so what I'd like to do is um, share my screen with you. For those who are less just listening to the audio, this document is available to you on the Facebook group or the Facebook uh, community, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, and it is also available on the webyeshiva.org course description for this week's course. Uh, the title of, our, of the chapter, therefore, we would say is The Uneven Motions of the Celestial or Heavenly Bodies Disproves Aristotle. Um, the Rambam starts off this chapter by saying, uh, I'm speaking in the second person, I am writing to you, my student, Yosef ben Yehuda. If you remember at the very beginning of Moren Vuchim, the Rambam had said that he was writing to one of his disciples who was quite learned in the ways of Aristotelian philosophy. But the student had taken a trip, had departed from his teacher, the Rambam, and therefore the Rambam says, there were many things that I taught you, um, um, uh, but I also want to let you know that there were things that I didn't teach you uh, that I'm going to present to you in this chapter. 
And in particular, I want to share with you some of the things that I have learned from the second century common era uh, philosopher and scientist Ptolemy, who was an astronomer, and he wrote a book on astronomy called The Almagest. Um, and, and I want to cite for you some later Arabic astronomers who, through their scientific discovery that Aristotle did not have access to, because Aristotle lived several centuries before them, but I will show you through their astronomical calculations and deductions that Aristotle's model cannot be correct. As an introduction to the science that we're going to be seeing now, of course, as we've mentioned and given a disclaimer many times before, Ptolemaic astronomy uses a geocentric model. It has been since shown to be um, not the most accurate model for describing our solar system and our universe, just as Aristotelian physics has been demonstrated to be not the most accurate model of describing how physics works. Um, <clears throat> but in the Ptolemaic model, and you know, you can pull this right off of Wikipedia, um, and I have the citation on the sheet. Um, the planets, uh, I would just want to give you some terminology. We're going to learn about three terms today. There are more terms that we could use, but I just want to keep it as simple as possible. The three terms that I'd like you to become familiar with are what we call an epicycle, a deferent, and an eccentric. Not an eccentric person, but an eccentric using astronomical terms. Uh, I draw your attention to this diagram that's in the center of the screen in, in the handout. And basically, this little blue and, um, I guess, tan uh, little circle represents the planet Earth. And what Ptolemy and many other astronomers observed is that the heavenly bodies, the planets, when they revolve around the Earth, do not revolve as was originally believed in a geocentric model where the Earth is the center, that everything revolves in a perfect circle with the Earth in the center. As a matter of fact, many astronomers observed, especially Ptolemy, that the Earth was not the center of that orbit of most of the planets. Another thing that he noticed is that there is retrograde motion or backwards motion in many of the heavenly bodies. So that while they're moving in a, in a forward motion, some of them move backwards while uh, uh, temporarily and then move forwards again. And he, it's very difficult to make sense of that if we're dealing with perfect motion around uh, the earth at its center point, how do we account for the lapses in this continuity of motion? And so Ptolemy came up with other, you know, there were other philosophers as well and scientists as well who came up with this, but that there is something called an epicycle. And an epicycle is if you look at this little small circle, you see, let's say the planet that's in question, it could be the moon, it could be the sun, it could be Venus, Mars, whatever, or Jupiter, whatever we're dealing with. But that little orange ball is in its own little orbit, a small orbit around its midpoint. And at the same time, it's moving in a larger orbit called a deferent um, in a circle. And as you'll note, the Earth is not the center of that deferent orbit, uh, which is that larger orbit, but it's off center. And you have something that with, that's marked with an X in the center of the circle, that's called the eccentric point, or the, the, uh, the orbit goes around the eccentric. That's really the center point of the deference orbit. And this model really helps to explain almost, almost every single kind of uh, peculiarity or 
um, uh, aberration of movement from uh, our perspective from the planet Earth. And therefore, uh, you know, you see the diagram as being described above this. I just pulled off of Wikipedia just to give you the, the basic idea. And essentially, uh, Ptolemy's uh, sort of presentation in this way accounts for all of the inconsistencies of motion that we would expect to see from a perfect uh, emanation from a perfect God that emanates perfect circular motions around the earth at its center. And that's what everyone believed, including Aristotle, in, in, until around the second century, when it was demonstrated through observation that that simply didn't work. The Rambam here presents four arguments that we're going to learn outside uh, and not look at his text, but we will look at the, at the very end of the chapter. We will go very deeply into the text. The four arguments that the Rambam makes, at least that I'm able to count, although he doesn't count them by number as one, two, three, and four, are as follows. The first argument is, if the epicycle's deferent orbit is not around the Earth because the Earth is not at the center, but rather the midpoint is the eccentric, it comes out that the epicycle is changing its place constantly, not orbiting evenly around the Earth's center as dictated by Aristotle. And just to quote the text of the Pines edition of the Rambam, the revolution of the epicycles is not around the center of the world, as we would normally expect. And that means that it's revolving around nothingness instead of something. But it is a fundamental principle of the world that there are three and only three forces or types of motion. You have a motion and everything is geocentric. Everything revolves around the planet Earth. The first type of motion is a motion from the midpoint, midmost point of the world that repels things from it. And that's what, according to Aristotle, causes air and fire to rise, is that there's a, sort of like an anti-gravitational force that pushes light bodies away from the Earth. But then you also have a motion toward that midmost point of the world, what we would call gravity, that which causes heavier bodies, to, like, like water and Earth, uh, and things made of those things, to fall to the Earth's center. But finally, the only the third type of motion is a circular motion around the Earth's midpoint. And those are the only three types of motion that Aristotle allows for when we're dealing with perfect motion. But if an epicycle exist, existed, its motion would be neither from that point, the, i.e. the Earth's center point, nor toward it, nor around it. And what the Rambam is basically, the Rambam is basically arguing is that um, the epicycle's motion um, it, around the deferent is not going around the Earth. It's going around uh, uh, something that is only imaginary, this eccentric point where there's nothing there that exists. And that's contradictory to Aristotle's uh, theory of motion. Argument number two, one of the preliminary assumptions of Aristotle in natural science is that there must necessarily be some immobile thing, in this case, the Earth, around which circular motion takes place, very similar to what he said in argument one. His argument is like this. If epicycles exist, the, uh, there would be a circular motion that theirs would be a circular motion that would not revolve around an immobile thing, but rather a constantly moving midpoint that is in motion around the deferent. And here the argument goes, that not only is the deferent, the larger orbit, not going around the Earth as its midpoint, but the planet in question that has an epicycle, this smaller orbit, 
is also going around nothing and doesn't have anything to sort of anchor it in that circular motion. And that's equally problematic. And just to extend this argument further, even if one were to change the model as the Arabic philosopher Abu Bakr did to eliminate epicycles and instead present a model of even more eccentric orbits to help sort of explain the, the, the motion, the, the, the heavenly bodies motions without using a theory of epicycles, this would not mitigate the difficulty since as we demonstrated in argument one, the center of, that, of, of those respective orbits would not be the Earth's midpoint, but rather an eccentric that is nothing of substance, hence not an immobile thing. Perhaps one could argue, but using Abu Bakr's model, maybe the eccentrics of those orbits don't have the Earth's center as their midpoint, but they do have a different thing around which they orbit, namely the zone of fire or of air, which are located within the moon's sphere of orbit. And what the, what um, the Rambam is referring to here is the Aristotelian scientific belief, which the Rambam did subscribe to, that there are layers of the four elements that are invisible to us, but that they are there are layers that orbit our planet. So that we have earth, or actually layers of earth and fire. We have something called a zone of fire and a zone of air. And the, the warmth that we experience using Arist Aristotelian science actually does not come from the sun, but rather comes from a layer of fire that is within the orbit of our atmosphere. We have air in our atmosphere, and then above the air, we have a layer of fire. And so perhaps you'll argue that you have these deferent, um, uh, you know, um, uh, non-normative orbits where the eccentric is removed from the earth. But maybe that eccentric is anchored, instead of being anchored in nothing, it's anchored in the either the air, the atmosphere of the Earth, or of the uh, or of that layer of fire that is above the air atmosphere. Maybe that's what you would argue. But he says, but that's not going to solve the problem, since those zones are also not immobile, as they too are in constant motion. And Aristotelian science demands that when something is in circular motion around another thing, that other thing that is its epicenter, as it's, it's the center of the circle, must be immobile. Furthermore, Ptolemy demonstrated that the eccentrics of many of the planets are even more distant from the Earth than the fire and air zones, which makes it impossible to uh, uh, place the eccentric of these various orbits within the Earth's atmosphere. And as a result, they're just simply out in no in in out in the middle of nothing. The sun's eccentric, for example, has been proven to be above the moon's orbit. The same is true for other planets. And just to quote directly, see now how all these things are remote from natural Aristotelian speculation. Okay, that's argument number two. Argument number three: When you have two spheres or orbits that are concentric, it follows scientifically that whenever the larger outer sphere is in motion, the smaller inner sphere will also be in motion. Um, and the reason why the, the Rambam holds this is because he holds that there are no vacuums in space. Everything is connected in the celestial realm. From this demonstrative premise, I'm just quoting now from the text itself, and from the demonstrated face that vacuum, uh, vacuum does not exist, and from the assumptions regarding eccentricity it follows necessarily that when the higher sphere is in motion, it must move the sphere beneath it with the same motion and around its own center. 
but we do not find that this is so. We find rather that neither of the two spheres, the containing and the contained, is set in motion by the movement of the other, nor does it move around the other center or poles, but that each of them has its own particular motion. And essentially what this argument states is, is that when we notice that we have concentric orbits of, let's say, um, uh, Venus and uh, um, Venus and Mars, will, or Venus and Mercury, we'll note that one, a, a smaller orbit may be contained within Mercury and a larger orbit going around it is Venus. But we still don't see, or vice versa, I'm not sure which one it is. But the fact of the matter is that we don't see any kind of consistency or interconnection between the orbit of the smaller orbit that is within the outer orbit. And that shows us that there's some disconnect that doesn't work with Aristotelian science. Hence, necessity obliges the belief that between every two spheres, there are other bodies other than those of the spheres. But if this is so, how many obscure points remain? How many doubts are we going to, to lodge when we can't even observe those bodies that are dividing the two spheres? Where will the centers of those bodies existing between every two spheres be? And those bodies should likewise have their own particular motion. All this I did not explain to you, my student, again, speaking in the second person to the student for whom he wrote the guide, for fear of confusing you with regard to that which it was my purpose to make you understand. And finally, argument number four, the highly erratic orbits of both Venus and Mercury around the Earth specifically those two planets, cannot be reconciled easily even within the Ptolemaic system of using epicycles and deference and eccentrics. This is what prompted Ptolemy to write that while these orbits may seem to be orchestrated with great difficulty, this is only from a human perspective. And for human matters should not be compared to those that are divine. And he's quoting directly from Ptolemy to basically say that Ptolemy himself acknowledged that some of his astronomical models were somewhat contrived because it's sort of like bending the pretzel in order to make all of this work. Consider, therefore, he says, all these challenges presented to Aristotle. If what Aristotle has stated with regard to natural science is true, there can be no epicycles or eccentric circles because that in itself shows particularization or an imperfect type of motion with throughout the universe and a, a, a basically an unevenness throughout the universe. And everything revolves around the center of the earth according to Aristotle. But in that case, how can the various motions of the stars come about? This consideration is all the stronger because of the fact that if one accepts everything stated by Ptolemy concerning the epicycle of the moon and eccentric deference, it will be found that what is calculated on the hypothesis of these two principles of both an, uh, uh, an epicycle and, and deference is not at fault by even a minute. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. Ptolemy has successfully demonstrated that epicycles and deference exist. They have to in order to, make, to account for the motions of the celestial bodies. And we calculate astronomy to the minute or to the second uh, using Ptolemaic, uh, the Ptolemaic planetary model. Furthermore, how can one conceive of the retrogradation or the backward motion of a star together with its other motions without assuming the existence of an epicycle? On the other hand, how can one imagine a rolling motion in the heavens or a motion around the center that is not immobile? This is the true perplexity. And then after presenting all of this, the Rambam writes as follows. While later philosophers expressed doubt about whether Aristotle knew about the eccentric orbit of the sun, the truth is that he was not aware of it and had never heard about it, for in his time, 
mathematics had not been brought to their level of perfection. If, however, he had he Aristotle had heard about some of these challenges to his uh, perfection model, he would have violently rejected it. And if it were proven to him as true, he would have become most perplexed about all the assumptions on the subject. And here I want to go now to page 326 at the bottom, and let's really read the ending of this chapter, starting from, I shall repeat here what I have said before, referring back to the Rambam's teaching in chapter 22. All that Aristotle states about that which is beneath the sphere of the moon is in accordance with reasoning. In other words, Aristotle was scientifically accurate in everything he writes about the sublunary realm, the realm that we, mankind, are familiar with, the earth, the bodies of uh, the oceans and the seas, the air, the atmosphere, the fire zone that's above the air. That's all right. These are things that have a known cause that follow one upon the other and concerning which it is clear and manifest at what points wisdom and natural providence are effective. However, regarding all that is in the heavens, man grasps nothing but a small measure of what is mathematical. And you know what is in it. I shall accordingly say, in other words, you know what our limitations are. You know what we can grasp mathematically based on the heavens and our observations, and we also know what we can't. I shall therefore say in the manner of poetical metaphor, only God knows what's in those heavens. It's only the earth that he gave to mankind. I mean thereby that the deity alone fully knows the true reality, the nature, the substance, the form, the motions, and the cause of the heavens. But he has enabled man to have knowledge of what is beneath the heavens, for that is his world and his dwelling place in which he has been placed and of which he himself is a part. This is the truth. And that's really, you know, very, very powerful, impactful words. For it is impossible for us to accede to the point starting from which conclusions may be drawn about the heavens. For the latter, the heavens are too far away from us and too high in place and in rank. And even the general conclusion that may be drawn from them, namely that they prove the existence of their mover, is a matter the knowledge of which cannot be reached by human intellects. Such a bold statement. The Rambam says, while most people of his time believe that you can look at the heavens and conclude something about their creator, the Rambam says, even that you cannot do. In other words, our, our power of observation and to extrapolate from our observation of the heavens, the nature of God is extremely limited. And to fatigue the minds with notions that cannot be grasped by them, and for the grasp of which they have no instrument, is a defect in one's inborn disposition or some sort of temptation. If you want to delude yourself, fine. You may want to delude yourself because of some cultural upbringing that you have or because of some um, uh, natural tendency. Let us then stop at a point that is within our capacity and let us give over the things that cannot be grasped by reasoning to him who was reached by the mighty divine overflow so that it could be fittingly said of him, with him do I speak mouth to mouth. In other words, only Moshe Rabbeinu could be privy to the inner machinations of the heavens because God showed him face to face. We who are not prophets or are not even lesser prophets than Moshe, we're not prophets at all, are not privy to this information. That is the end of what I have to say about this question. It is possible that someone else may find a de demonstration by means of which the true reality of what is obscure for me will become clear to him. What the Rambam is now saying is, I know, that not, not every scientific issue has been resolved yet. I know 
that there is a future in science where someone may come forward and prove the true nature of the heavenly body's motions and will provide even a better model than Ptolemy himself, which is still an imperfect model, which there are still questions like he pointed out in argument number four based on the motions of Venus and Mercury. But the extreme predilection that I have for investigating the truth is evidenced by the fact that I have explicitly stated and reported my own perplexity regarding these matters, as well as by the fact that I have not heard, nor do I know a demonstration as to anything concerning them. A true truth seeker is prepared to say, I don't know. And in this chapter, the Rambam ends chapter 24 with essentially saying, it is far better to say, I don't know, than to come up with a flawed theory because from flawed theories come flawed conclusions and extrapolations, even extending into one's theological base. You never want to be, you never want to do that because it is better to say, I don't know, than to come up with a conclusion that will lead you down the wrong path of knowledge. So um, uh, you'll forgive me for being a little bit more rushed on this chapter today, but essentially the Rambam's conclusion is that there are certain mysteries about, especially the heavenly realm, that we will never be able to figure out, at least not in his lifetime. He, he concedes that it's possible that later generations will figure it out. But at least I, the Rambam, am, who am very knowledgeable about modern astronomy, acknowledge that there are certain mysteries that we simply will not be able to resolve. And as such, it is better for us to say, I don't know, than to come up with a conclusion that is erroneous. And even though it would be wonderfully elegant to be able to have a theory of everything and to be able to say we figured it out, um, it's better to say we don't know. We, that's where we are in many, uh, in many people's minds today in the scientific community, especially around this idea called the theory of everything. This conflict between um, rel the relativity theory and, um, and quantum physics, which seem to be irreconcilable in certain areas, which has led to different theories about string theory and multiple dimensions and, uh, and, uh, and, and so many other theories. These are all wonderful, but as, as long as science acknowledges that these are simply theories that have yet to be proved, one can uh, conjecture and come up with whatever theories that uh, describe the universe elegantly. But to come up with a theory and then to say that I believe this to be true because it is the most elegant solution that I can come up with would be erroneous and would not be scientific in one's thinking. Okay, so this is where we'll hold it for today. And I want to thank you for joining me. And we'll see you, Bezrat Hashem, next time with Chapter 25. All the best.